Welcome to The Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. Today's Politics Guys interview is brought to you ad-free. And I know a lot of you are saying, well, that's great. We wish you could do away with ads altogether. Um, well, you know, ads are what pay the bills, keep the show going. And so the fewer ads we have, the more we need to, well, ask you to help us support the show and keep it going. And so if if you're able to do that, that would be greatly appreciated by us. And to become a Politics Guys supporter financially, you can just go to politicsguys.com and click on the Patreon link. Thanks very much. And now on to the interview. My guest today is Carter Doherty, Communications Director for Americans for Financial Reform. Prior to that, he was a financial reporter at Bloomberg News, European economic correspondent for the International Herald Tribune and New York Times, and the international trade and business reporter at the Washington Times. Carter Doherty, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. You know, to start with, can you tell listeners a little bit about uh, Americans for Financial Reform, how long the group's been around, what it does, that sort of thing? Sure. Americans for Financial Reform has been around since about 2009 when Congress began debating seriously how to reform the financial system after the 2008 financial crisis and the the terrible recession that followed. Uh, It began really as a shoestring operation. Um, We now have about a dozen staff. And the important thing to know about AFR is it's a coalition. It's uh, consumer advocates, it's faith groups, it's uh, labor unions, it's academics, it's Anybody who wants to make a contribution toward making the financial system more fair, more just, and more stable. Okay. You know, speaking of fair, just, and stable, uh, at least something to me that seems a bit uh, a bit unfair, I would say, is the big news this, this very week is that Congress actually rolled back what I thought was a very important uh, rule that the uh, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau uh, attempted to put it into place. I, didn't, I believe it wouldn't have gone into effect until next year, but about uh, forced arbitration. I was wondering if uh, you, you had any thoughts on that rule and whether or not rolling it back was a, was a good move. We thought this was an awful step for consumers, an absolutely awful step. And it's one that, frankly, uh, Congress has done at the behest of nothing more than Wall Street money, you know. It's important to remember that most small banks and credit unions don't really use arbitration in their contracts. And in fact, there's a number of larger banks that do. But there are some big banks, notably Wells Fargo uh, of fake accounts scandal fame, that lean very, very heavily on the use of forced arbitration. And when all said and done, their their money won the day. Uh, We thought this... This is something forced arbitration was the subject of a, of a long study by the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, the most extensive study of forced arbitration ever. Uh, and they concluded that this was was harmful to consumers. And they also, it's important to remember, we're not even proposing to actually ban arbitration, but merely to curb its use by saying that consumers have the option. They could use arbitration, but they could also 
use class action lawsuits if they felt that was appropriate. But uh, simply giving consumers that choice was apparently too much for, for Wall Street, and they persuaded Congress to go along. Right. Now, there was, on this issue, I believe, there was some pushback from the Treasury, and was it the Comptroller or the Currency Office, I think, arguing that this would impose higher costs on on financial institutions who would pass this along in terms of uh, higher interest rates and so forth. Uh, I, I'm taking, I, I'm assuming you don't really buy that analysis. This was this was straight up nonsense propagated by uh, two agencies that are now run by former bank executives. And I can explain this in very, very stark terms, which is that there are two large banks, Capital One and Bank of America, that for reasons of their own, don't actually use forced arbitration, whereas Wells Fargo does. So if any of these scary stories that you heard out of the Treasury Department or the Office of the Control of the Currency were true, then you would expect Bank of America and Capital One, major credit card issuers who use who don't use forced arbitration, to be in real trouble vis-a-vis their competitors. But in fact, they are not. This was simply something um that was they, they they had their own sort of studies and letters that were cooked up quickly in back rooms uh in an attempt to undermine the rule but you know again the control of the currency is now a guy named keith norica who is a longtime uh bank executive at the same bank that the secretary of treasury uh steve mnuchin ran um so it's not entirely surprising that they are doing the bidding of their former employers. Right. Yeah, I I know this is kind of a wonky issue, but it's really important to me, and I think uh, it it can be important to to millions of Americans. And it seems to me that there's one argument that I hear from conservatives a lot as well. Given that there are alternatives, you can go to Bank of America or, you know, or other places that don't use arbitration, then consumers have a choice. and, And therefore, if it's important to them, they will choose these other financial institutions. Now, to me, I don't know, that seems kind of like a bogus argument because as far as I know, when anyone is thinking about choosing a financial institution, that's not something that comes to mind. And so, uh, I mean, what do you think about this argument that, well, there are op- options for consumers? Well, you have to remember that a financial services contract for a consumer who is not a big entity that's able to negotiate with a big bank is a take it or leave it proposition. So imagine for the moment where you are looking for a credit card and the right one for you uh, on price might be with Wells Fargo for whatever reason, but Wells Fargo uses forced arbitration and Capital One doesn't, and the card you would get with Capital One would be more expensive. Now. The libertarian, free marketeering, and apparently Trump administration argument to this is consumers get consumers just choose caveat emptor, let the buyer be aware. Well, you can't because you can't negotiate with a big entity as a consumer. And what's more is, I think we lose sight of this if if you're um, we can we can lose sight of how complicated our financial lives have become and what it takes as far as your background and your upbringing and your socioeconomic status to appreciate 
the different options that are being offered or in some cases forced upon you. These are non-trivial, complicated decisions, and it is not wrong to say that from time to time, regulators step in to simplify these things or or to uh, simply ban certain practices that have a documented record of being harmful to consumers. Right. Absolutely. You know, before this, I think the biggest financial story, well, at least the last few months, was that massive data security breach at Equifax. And I'm wondering, to what extent would you say that this is due to inadequate regulation and, and what sort of legislative or regulatory action do you think might be helpful in cases like this? So there's 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 some narrow issues on questions of, for example, cybersecurity, and then there's the broader questions of, of credit bureaus themselves. So let me sort of take those in sequences. One is there's lots of things that can be done regarding cybersecurity that are being considered by regulators or have been considered by Congress. This isn't a terribly productive Congress, so I'm not holding my breath uh, in that department, but that's a complicated issue that is not specific to um, not specific to, to credit bureaus. You know, there's a there's a uh, there there was something said by uh, I believe it was a former intelligence official of that there are two kinds of big companies in the United States, which is those that have been hacked and those that don't realize that they that hackers have attempted to get to them. So that that's a serious problem that, that straddles a lot of industries. On the question of credit bureaus themselves, regulation is still kind of broken up. Um, there's the Federal Trade Commission that has certain responsibilities. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau has certain responsibilities. None of those address the broader question of, you know, exactly what kind of system for credit reporting do we want to have? I think most Americans until, certainly until the Equifax breach, you know, may not have appreciated that when, when a credit bureau talks about you, you're not the customer, you're the product because it's your information that they are taking and selling to banks who want to loan you money. So there's a fundamental sort of justice question of here of why is it exactly that they get to profit off of your information um, and sell it to people who then you know profit off of your business. Um, to many people, there's something fundamentally wrong about that. And there are other models in the world. There are public registries of credit information that let creditors make these decisions sensibly, but have considerably more democratic control around. So hopefully we are at the front end of a debate about whether credit reporting needs to change fundamentally uh, and not simply a, a narrow question of, of cybersecurity. Right. And one of the one of the big problems, right, is that you can't simply opt out of, of this system. And I think there were some people who wanted to do that, but they found that uh, you can't just simply call up Equifax and say, stop tracking me or let me know, you know, something along those lines. It's, it's not. That's possible. exactly right. And, you know, you, at, at times consumers have also found it difficult to simply call up Equifax and say, Hey, 
you say that I took out this loan and didn't pay back, didn't pay it back. I never took out that loan or I did take out this loan, but I also paid it back. You know, errors on credit reports are, are very, very hard to get corrected for, for many consumers. And it's a, a source of vast, vast complaints by uh, consumers to the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Yeah. Um, you know, you mentioned that uh, AFR has been in existence since uh, just after, actually, the financial crisis. And so I wanted to to talk about that because, you know, it's been almost a decade, but it seems like we're still feeling, I would argue, some of the effects of it today. And so uh, what would you say, I mean, what would you say were the, the main issues that you saw the main causes of that? And uh, what to what extent would you say that they were addressed in legislatively, especially in, in the Dodd-Frank legislation of, you know, 2010? Well, first of all, let's take the point that you made in the front uh, end of your question about the financial crisis and the recession still still being very much an issue. Um, the Great Recession, as it's now become known, actually started, uh, we know in retrospect, in December 2007. So we are one month away from 10 years of the Great Recession, and it's only relatively recently that we've gotten back to a low-ish unemployment rate, but nevertheless with still serious problems with wage stagnation, especially at the, you know, the, the lower end of the spectrum. And millions of Americans who went through the searing process of losing their home, of living in this state of incredible financial insecurity, uh, and of getting back into the workforce, but not making as much money as they used to. And a generation really that entered the workforce and we know from studies will not earn as much over their lifetimes because they started out at such a rough period of time. So don't let anyone tell you that, uh, you know, to paraphrase uh, William Faulkner, the you know the the past is past. It's not past, and this is this was this was a terrible experience. Um, you know, I would add that it was also heavily tilted toward um, you know lower income groups and um, and of course uh, communities of color in this country. And this is not something that will soon be forgotten. And I really stress would stress to your listeners that that we need to bear this in mind that that redeeming this time the crisis and afterwards is the work of a generation rather than a decade so that having been said that and I having stood proudly on my soapbox um, I'll say that Congress made important strides toward making the financial system in particular safer and in some respects fairer but we still have a long way to go. Now, safe can be measured in a lot of ways, but one one particular measurement is that banks are better capitalized, that they have um, you know better ways to absorb losses in the future. Um, fair is the existence of a strong consumer financial protection bureau that has obtained roughly twelve billion dollars in relief for about twenty nine million Americans in its short history. Um, fairer is that there are now 
careful. There are now standards for underwriting mortgages uh, that did not exist before the crisis. Fair is that you can't change the way a business is incorporated and escape regulation um, to to write shoddy mortgages. Uh, more transparent is an important one as well. It's a little, it's a little wonkish, but it's important that things like complex derivatives markets um, have considerably more transparent, more transparency to them. Um, I could go on, but that the, those that in broad brush is what Dodd Frank got right. What Dodd Frank could not institutionalize by the very nature of legislation is regulators who care about effective enforcement of the law and effective supervision of the financial system. And this is where the discussion turns political because we now have an administration that is appointing people to regulatory positions with uh, a considerable disdain for some for the careful oversight uh, that we saw over the last eight years. So that that, frankly, going forward is going to be the biggest challenges. Um, there are other legislative agendas that we could talk about, but I think that's the most, most urgent question. Well, you know, you mentioned a lot of things that Dodd-Frank got right. I'm wondering, was there anything that, you know, significant that you feel wasn't addressed that really should have been addressed? Well, from our perspective, there are things like bringing the financial system into a fairer and more just tax system. For example, you may have heard discussions from time to time about a financial transaction tax. That's something we think that is desperately needed in the for the financial system so that we can discourage the kind of short-term speculation that tends to make markets unstable, um, but also more broadly for making the tax system more just. Um, there's the question of things like the, the carrot, so-called carried interest loophole. And um, now with the big tax cut bill that's being considered in, in Congress is the, the, the taxation of pass-through entities, um, you know, somewhat technical terms here, but in, in, in a broader sense, they're about making sure that, that Wall Street pay, pays its fair share like the rest of us. Right. You know, some people say that all of this regulation really is is unnecessary and that all we really need to do is to, to, to kind of curb that risky behavior of financial institutions that seem to be such a big part of the crash would be to just pass legislation that essentially forbids government bailouts. And it seems like both the left and the right are against bailouts of financial institutions. So what do you think about this idea? Well, it's important to remember that bailouts have never been legal in any meaningful sense. That's why Congress had to pass the so-called Troubled Asset Relief Program, you know, the TARP, the bank bailout, uh, in 2008. We all remember those, those harrowing days when Congress was told, hey, if you don't do this, the, the financial system is going to disintegrate. Bailouts were illegal. Congress passed a law uh, making and making them possible, and President Bush signed this into law. You can't simply say we're going to forbid these things. What you have to do is address the underlying problems that 
lead to a systemic crisis in the financial system that leave you with this terrible choice of either letting the financial system crash and dragging down the rest of it with us, the rest of us with it, or bailing out the banks. So it's not so much, I mean, this is factually wrong, bailouts are not legal, but if you don't try to solve the underlying problem, then you're doing nothing to solve the overall problem. Right. Well, what, a, what about, you know, there's some conservatives who say uh, the problem with regulation or the, the problem with imposing fairly strict limits, say, on leverage in U.S. financial institutions is that that's going to put them at a, at a competitive disadvantage to other financial institutions internationally and will end up actually hurting the consumer in the long run. What, what do you think about those arguments? We can answer this question in a lot of different ways, but one of my favorite ways to answer it is to look at the case of tiny Switzerland and ask yourself, whose interests is it actually in to have big, large banks? Switzerland has two very large banks, uh, UBS and Credit Suisse. And Switzerland was out in front in imposing very tough capital requirements on their two largest banks, far ahead of, of any of the other countries and early on. And the reason for that was that, you know, Switzerland is practically synonymous with banks, right? But what they did was they looked at their financial system and said, our interest is in a financial system as a whole that is healthy and vibrant and credible, and not simply in having two very, very large banks um, that can drag the rest of us down. So their conclusion was that our interest, in, in air quotes there, was in bringing these large banks to heel and making sure that they were extremely stable and not some chimera of, we need these big banks to compete with other big banks based in other countries around the world. And I think that is a salutary lesson for all of us uh, in, in, on, on, a, on a smaller scale of appreciating that having big banks is not some, is not some sort of, certainly not some sort of public policy goal that we should, we should all strive to. We should have banks um, that are, that are stable, that treat people fairly, that perform the function of credit intermediation, uh, you know, simply ensuring that they're big and can compete with other big banks is, is, is not something that we should be striving for. Okay. Now, it seems to me, this is at least my personal impression, is that whenever there's some sort of massive wrongdoing in the financial sector, that the companies responsible get off with, you know, some sort of a fine that seems big to maybe regular people, but it's really kind of a pittance compared to what their annual revenues are. And, and almost nobody ever ends up in jail, at least, you know, nobody at the top levels. And, and I'm wondering if you think, first off, that's a fair assessment. And if it is, why this seems to be so often the case? I think it's a fair assessment entirely. Uh, I think you can ask a lot of questions about how this has come to be the case. Sometimes it's the structure of the laws. Um, a very good journalist by the name of Jesse, Jesse Isinger recently uh, published a book entitled uh, The Chicken Shit Club, 
in which he the 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 reference is to is from a a phrase that describes prosecutors who are willing to go after small fry and but not willing to take on the really heavy lifts and there's there's a lot of things go- going on there there's the political influence of Wall Street. Uh, We know, for example, that Tim Geithner, the Treasury Secretary, uh, told the Attorney General just after the financial crisis that starting to prosecute executives would be a danger to the financial system, um, which I don't believe, but that 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 apparently held some water and helped deter prosecutions. Um, The other is the emergence of what one might call big law as opposed to big banks um, and the lawyer industrial complex that sort of circulates in and out of the Justice Department and, you know, into corporate law firms and where um, there seem to be certain sort of prejudices against, uh, you know, taking to task people, companies that you, uh, you know, may have had a professional acquaintance with or, or your firm did. Uh, there's a, There's a lot of ways to answer that question, but I think for me, I would highlight a basic issue of of being unwilling to touch the powerful, um, being unwilling to apply justice to the powerful in a way that, that we might apply it to the less powerful or powerless. I mean, every day of the week and twice on Sunday, there's some prosecutor uh, in in the country who is prosecuting someone to, quote, make an example of them to other potential wrongdoers. And if we're going to take that approach with with ordinary Americans, then really you barely need a rationale for uh, going tough on some Wall Street executives. It's to make an example of them so that other Wall Street executives don't follow theirs. Yeah, you know, you mentioned these these kind of powerful uh, Wall Street folks, and it seems to me, I don't know, some people would argue this is kind of a bipartisan concern. I remember back when you know Barack Obama was running for president, he talked a lot about greed on Wall Street and so forth, and you know, cleaning things up. But when he got into office, it seemed to me that many of the people he appointed to a lot of his top positions in finance and economics were kind of that same crew that a lot of people would say we're largely responsible for what happened. And then of course, you know, Donald Trump uh, drained the swamp and so forth, but he turned to, you know, that same Goldman Sachs kind of crew to run things. And so I think it makes reasonable people wonder, you know, does wall street essentially control financial policy in the United States, no matter which party's in power? Uh, What do you think? Well, I, I think above all, it's important to appreciate the, the degrees here. Would an organ was an organization like AFR happy with the the number of sort of Wall Street oriented people who were in positions of responsibility in the Obama administration? No, of course not. But the Obama administration, President Obama, signed Dodd Frank into law. So this was a place where was there there was a heavy tilt toward Wall Street experience in the administration and that certainly affected decision making, but there was a vibrant debate when President Obama was in the White House about what do we do about Wall Street? How much do we do? You know, we there there was room to maneuver here. In in the current administration, we have 
uh, a, a blanket handover of the administrative and, and regulatory apparatus uh, to the very industry that it's you know that, that got us into this mess. So while um, I, you will not find us unwilling to criticize uh, some of the appointments of the Obama administration, we got to keep into perspective of what we're facing and, frankly, what we're facing today. The Obama administration history, we now have to deal with a different one, and it's orders of magnitude worse. Yeah. Well, I, I'm sure that one thing that you're uh, that AFR is definitely opposed to is Republican action that if, well, there are Republicans who would like to limit the power of the Consumer uh, Financial Protection Bureau, which to me is one of the best things that came out of uh, uh, Dodd Frank. And but one point that conservatives make about CFPB is that it's far too politically unaccountable and that there needs to be more political control on it, or maybe that it even needs to be abolished. And so I'm wondering if you think that Republicans have any sort of a reasonable point about the lack of political accountability uh, in CFPB. No, I don't. And, And for a simple reason, which is this never became a problem until there was an agency defending consumers that that Wall Street hated. Um, you know, let's not forget that, um, you know, the agency we just spoke of, the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, which regulates the big national banks in this country, is run by a single director, has its own dedicated funding stream. Um, you know, CFPB took from various ideas of how to structure a regulator and put them into, you know, a strong regulator on behalf of consumers. And this this didn't never see these various aspects of public policy never seemed to be a problem until you had an agency defending consumers. So I I, I think a lot of it is just not. Do you think that Republicans will succeed in limiting the power of the CFPB here in the near future? Uh, that's a big question we could talk about for a long time. What I will say is that this is an agency that's been incredibly successful uh, in its mission. I mentioned the you know twelve billion in relief for twenty nine million Americans, and above all, its mission is popular across regions, across demographics, across parties. So there is simply uh, no reason to believe that this this will be remotely popular. Um, limiting power can come in different forms, uh, to, but a lot of CFPB is written into the law. The law can't be changed without an act of Congress. So we will fight tooth and nail to ensure that this continues to be a strong regulator on behalf of consumers. Now, you mentioned uh, previously uh, Trump appointments. Now, I believe, right, that Rob Cordray, the uh, director of CFPB, his term ends fairly soon, right? So President Trump will have the opportunity to appoint his successor. And so is that that's correct, right? And I would imagine he would appoint somebody who's not quite as strong of a consumer advocate, right? His, his term ends next year, and we don't exactly know whether he might uh, leave early or whatnot. But, you know, once again, there's a moment in time where the uh, the the administration would have to nominate some somebody or put some possibly put somebody into an acting position, and 
there will be a debate about whether this is this is an appropriate uh, selection it would have to be uh, confirmed by Congress. So let's not get ahead of ourselves. Here. All right. Well, uh, I know we're, we're out of time. So with that, we will close. Uh, Carter Dory, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. My pleasure. That's it for this Politics Guys interview. Thanks for listening. We hope you like what you heard. Listener support is a huge help to us, and we really do appreciate it. So if you're interested in joining our great group of Politics Guys supporters, you could do that by going to politicsguys.com and just clicking on the Patreon link you'll see there. And if you want to support the show without spending anything at all, it's really helpful if you can share this episode with your friends and followers uh, and pass along our new show posts and tweets that we put up on Facebook and Twitter. Also, leaving reviews and ratings of the show on iTunes really is helpful as well. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can do that by writing us at mail at politicsguys.com. Also, there's our Facebook page where you can message us and where we post stuff throughout the week. That's at facebook.com slash politicsguys page. We're also on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorff, and Bruce Johnson. Today's show was produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Saturday. We hope you'll join us.